their practice, the Haranis, mantras, um, visualizations, the rosary beads, malas that one can use. So of course, there's these tankas, um, chakli. There's many, many different ways of assisting in the development of this natural state of mind. And they're all useful, depending on the students and what they're used to. Every mechanism. But in the end, what has to be looked at, and this is the main thing, is the way the emotions work with the mind. In reality, the emotions are the great and is the great enemy. Desire mind, karma manas. Uh, you are trying to cleanse the emotions of its volatility. There's only three aspects of the emotions that are useful. Devotion to higher ideals. The creative imagination that allows you to build the images of deity. And high aspiration. To help all sentient beings, for instance, to become Buddha-like. The rest you can throw away into the garbage heap where it belongs. It's not needed. Of course one is needs these emotions because everywhere around you are emotional people. The world is full, is awash with emotions that causes all the sicknesses, pain, suffering, distress, agony, rapaciousness, cruelty, selfishness, etc., etc., that inflict humanity. And you are the disciple, the Bodhisattva, trying to become dispassionate, calm, serene, loving, but without the emotions. Amongst all of that, hmm, it's a problem that all disciples have. And this is another reason why there's a Sangha that is necessary. The Sangha is your solace. The Sangha are those that are working likewise with you to produce serenity, quietude, harmonious interrelationship, yes? Wisdom, love, the sense of oneness. So there is the new forest, the new monastery, um, the new cave is the Sangha that we build. And the Sangha travels with you wherever you are. Pair off, even individually, wherever you are, it's there, it's in your heart. They are you and you are it. Or you are them if you want. One, not two. Different aspects of the same mandala. And that is the challenge of modern discipleship, the karma that we have. How to teach the modern world to not be so emotional. To not think so stupidly with the emotions. To think logically. To think lovingly. To think abstractly. To think with clear, calm mind. With the clear mind functioning. The clear mind is cool. It is not heated. It is calm. There's no passion. And it is vast because it has no boundaries to attach itself to. It is everywhere and multidimensional. 
So this is what you're working to achieve, and this is what I as the Buddha, you as the Sangha, and what is given to us from higher sources as the Dharma is to achieve. As we tread together through space and time, and we evolve together from life to life, we expand and evolve to eventually become a star system, then a galaxy, if you want, then a universe. Always evolving together. That is what a Sangha is. I have a couple of questions. The first one was <coughs> around rebirth in the beginning, saying, according to um, traditional Buddhist teachings, that uh, life after life, your rebirth is random. You could next life be reborn as an animal or reborn uh, in the um, <coughs> God realms or um, hell realms. So it's kind of like random. There's no such thing as randomness. Random is a law of chance. There's no law, there's no karma, it's random. Karma is explicable law. It's the law of love and unfoldment. So it's the Buddha law, the law that makes a Buddha. There's not the slightest amount of chance in, in the law of rebirth or karma. Otherwise, it would be not a law. But random in the sense that um, you're not always going to get another human rebirth. Yeah, they, 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 it is said, you know, sort of the precious um, uh, human birth. Um, but the reality is there only ever is human rebirth. There's nothing else. Um, of course, you can have a human rebirth in a preta form. Uh, you can have a um, human rebirth in, in a hell state with grossly distorted um, shape. Um, you, you, you could be... Um, uh, an Asura type um, rebirth as well um, because when you die your body is thrown away but what takes its place is your body of desires and if it's full of hatred and um, it's, believe me it distorts into the shapes that um, is often depicted in, in not just Buddhist hells or pictures of hell states but in the Christian and other religionists as well um, the the but at all times the human consciousness is there. So even if we're reborn as a dog, well, if you're reborn as a dog, I, I'll give you even a better example. Now, if you're reborn, if you're born into say a cow, now a cow spends its time chewing cud. It eats grass. It chews cud. It fornicates. It's all it does. Now these are samskaras. So. If you are born immediately out of being a cow to being a human being, the samskaras of chewing grass, chewing, uh, eating grass all your time, chewing cud and fornicating, all you could do, you would have this strong tendency always to want to eat grass. Or if you're born as a sheep or something like that. Now, you understand it's just not a... I don't know any human beings um, that has the samskara. And if you understand, karma and samskaras are one and the same. Um, then the samskara of being born as an animal must come through in a human state. Where do you have it? Where do you see it? Of course we have animal-like passions. I see some people with goat-like tendencies, um, uh, monkey-like attitudes. Monkey mind is strong in so many that I know. Um, that does not mean that they're a monkey. It just means uh, that um, 
their minds haven't been properly developed yet. But the animal-like state is there. It's a monkey body. It's an animal body. It's a monkey mind of an animal body. And those that, that gave us this exoteric doctrine of the law of karma were simply using these allegories and putting it into this form because it was the best way to teach um, the goat herders, the village people, the yak herders or whatever from 10,000 years ago when the doctrine of karma may have been first given long before Gautama, long before the Hindu religion even came into existence. The doctrine of karma was taught. And very simple minds needs very simple teachings. Therefore, um, suffer, hurt animals, you're going to be born as an animal. Do this, you're going to be born like this. Um, extreme examples, that's what they needed. Um, because they were not <coughs> able to have high philosophical uh, rationalizations and thinking. They just needed to know not to hurt, mm. not to cause suffering. And that was a good way. Um, so the, the teaching is exoteric, and it is correct, symbolically correct. Right? There's also chakra reasons, which I explained, uh, for the reason for the wheel of rebirth. It actually is a correct teaching, but it's an exoteric teaching the way it is utilized. Mm. Right? There's three types of minds as given in Buddhist teachings. There's the um, exemplary minds that once they heard Dharma, they immediately understand it. Right? There's the low common um, mind a per type of person that when they are taught a dharma have to be told again and again and their understanding is ignorant. This teaching and then there's the middle way where they can come to an understanding after some learning. But this teaching of karma the way it is taught is for the lowest level mind, not for the high exemplary minds. If you read Evans Wentz, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, there he says that his lama, Lama um, Karadawa Samdup and um, and he this was in the 1930s uh, when he did this book he said every enlightened person that they ever talked to whether Hindu and Buddhist said this that rebirth is only in human forms the doctrine of rebirth related to being born on animals is an exoteric doctrine only at his time in the 1930s, the teachers that they went to, Hindu and Buddhist, were in agreement according to um, Govinda and his Lama. Nowadays, because of the degeneration of Buddhism, that doctrine, the esoteric teachings has been lost. And they only know the exoteric. And that's what is taught. Because the high teachers have disincarnated. You can read it. Um, from the Tibetan Book of the Dead by Evans Wentz, right, in his time. Another question. Mm. Um, again, in traditional esoteric Buddhist teachings about purification of karma through Vajrasattva and other such practices mm. like that, can you purify negative karma through practices such as Vajrasattva? <coughs> Well, you'd have to explain Vajrasattva to me. But there is a, a doctrine in, um, in Buddhism and certain um, Buddhist practices that you can atone for somebody else's 
misdeeds by, for instance, um, doing good works such as releasing birds um, uh, that have been trapped or... And um, this type of um, a karmic atonement is not possible. The law of karma. There are certain cases of karmic transference only amongst enlightened beings. Um, where I can take, um, say for instance, if, if um, I had um, close karmic connection with, say, Milarepa, and Milarepa was to leave the earth because he's a Buddha. Um, and he's got a, f a little bit of fragmentary karma left of his disciples. I can take on that karma for the education of his disciples. But that doctrine was then twisted and distorted again and made into an exoteric teaching as a type of um, that we can atone for other people's misdeeds by taking upon ourselves certain types of no. And the law of karma is a law. It's if anything happens that changes the law, it would not be a law. There's no exception to a law. It simply is the law. You do an action, you must pay for it. We are in um, speech, word or deed. In other words, mentally, emotionally or physically. It's your action, your karma. I cannot help you in your karma. All I can do is stand by compassionately and try to mitigate the circumstances around you and so as to um, assist you in understanding your karma and, and to assist you in overcoming the worst of it um, by trying to um, help some of the extenuating circumstances. But no enlightened being, not one, it would, would stop the karma from manifesting. It needs to be manifesting. It was like um, if you go back to the Middle Ripper story, because um, I like the story of Milrepa. There was one stage when um, when Milrepa came and he had all his back you know, broken full of sores and Marpa's wife wanted to help him by giving him certain teachings. And then Marpa heard that she gave him teachings and he screamed at her. Right, he absolutely screamed at her. And then belted Milrepa out of the house. Why? And then he said, because you've done this, he now has to suffer two more lives. Because she tried to help him from some of his karma. It's not, a, it's not something that anyone could do. Your karma was created by you, and we work out your karma in such a way that it will teach you what not to do. Your karma is your best teacher. God, imagine what it would be like if you didn't get sick. I mean, you'd probably be happy. Oh, I don't know. Um, let, let, us, let us say this. If you didn't have the karma of pain and suffering, you would probably not be like the Buddha and have the strong body sattva vow to go out, out of the pleasure garden and, and be shocked by seeing um, horrible things like um, somebody sort of um, lame and somebody sort of old age and somebody sort of uh, distressed. Most people would actually be happy with their... 300 sort of dancing girls and their wife and every luxurious food given to them. That's their dream of what life should be about, yes? But only through pain and suffering are you taught to become a Buddha. And we would not allow the educational method that you need to become a Buddha from being teaching you something. So the karma is woven in such a way that everyone suffers 
their past mistakes in such a way that they've got a chance to learn from it. Whether they learn from it or not is up to them. But we offer it to them, and sometimes again and again and again. So if you don't learn once, then you're going to get the same karma, the same experience in a different form, again and again, until eventually it sinks in. Do not do that sort of thing, because it will produce such and such a reaction, such and such a consequence. And then you become a compassionate bodhisattva, yes? That's how we all became bodhisattvas, because we created heinous crimes in past lives. I can go back many lives and I've done some not so nice actions. I'm still suffering now a little bit. I have a third problem that um, comes from sort of terrible things I did as a black magician long before the earth was actually. But I'm still suffering the karma from before the earth was even conceived of or was conceived of but not a globe such as what we're living on now. Karma can be that long, um, and uh, <coughs> it can be um, vast, but eventually it converts you to becoming a bodhisattva, because you experience the pain, and you experience the suffering again and again, you eventually learn what not to do. And when you learn what not to do, you see others going through the same suffering that you've experienced, and you know through practical experience what it does, what's its effect, where it goes to. You bow down and you try to help that person not to make the same mistakes. Now the same is for any parent with their children. They see their children sort of do this and this and this. Every responsible parent will try to educate the child so that they don't produce the actions that will cause them suffering or misery when they grow up. There's a lot of unwise parents, but every parent is trying to help their children not to suffer. Because the parent has gone through this and this and this and this and this. Of course, often what happens, the teenage years come along and the child will not listen because they've got their own ideas as to where their world is at and it's not yours because you're the oldie. But you've gone through all of that. You've seen it. You've gone there. You've done it. right? And you try to help. And the same is as a bodhisattva when you see humanity. You've learnt from that mistake 20 lives ago. You fixed it up. Now you're busy. That's already now we've renewed the fixed up process. It's already an instinct. You will not touch that type of action again for anything. You don't want to go in an army, for instance, and have a gun in your hand. You know that it's not. It's not a concept that in your mind. Uh, well, you know, I'm talking to you personally. Right? You know, in your mind, it's, it's something you know you prefer to to die of starvation or end up in jail. It's not. Because you in past lives have many times um, killed people. You've seen the suffering. You've been killed. Um, you've learnt the lessons from that type of lifestyle and no more. Um, so the, the, the samskaras, the karmas to teach you what not to do. That's why we have sicknesses and diseases. The lords of love and life, the great Buddhas that have created all this life to live in and our pleasure gardens, so as to speak. They made sure there's sickness and disease for us to learn from. They could have stopped it all. And matter of fact, there's a lot of earth zones, so there's no such thing as sickness and disease. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it, you know, we, we, we are beautiful sort of um, uh, experiment that we, where we evolve through pain and suffering and response to it. And this is the quick way to enlightenment. Without the pain and suffering, no 
path to enlightenment is so excruciating and slow, I don't even want to be in the universe like that. So you can see the necessity of pain. The best mm. teachers there is. Without it, we would not grow. Nor would anyone else out there. They'd all be involved in their pleasure gardens. They'd all be like the gods in, in, in the, the, you know, the, the highest of the six realms, um, fully enjoying all of their comforts, and full of pride. This is what these six realm teachings are supposed to teach you. Don't be like the gods. Even all that pleasure that they have, eventually you're going to be reincarnated again and suffer hell. There's no way of escaping it. Um, no way. Um, so the best thing is to do is accept your karma. Cleanse it in a wise way. Learn from it. Don't make those actions again. Teach others not to do it. And that's all what the Bodhisattva path really is about. Whether it's on an individual scale or whether it's on a massive planetary scale where you're trying to teach nations what not to do. Because later on, you see that nations are like human beings. Aggressive, bullish, selfish. You know, there's some, uh, you know, I've been looking at nations as there any nations on this planet that actually are on the body self path. India is not, you can see it quite clearly. It's so, you know, callous to its poor people. Uh, well, we don't have to speak about um, you know, America's on the dark path. Um, there may be one or two somewhere like that Norway. actually is kind and considerate to its own people and giving a, 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 a proper international citizen where it's actually helping, helping the countries around it. But it's difficult. But that's where bodhisattvas, as you go to the higher levels of bodhisattvahood, you're talking about education of nations, educations of large groups, not individuals so much, but it's on a, on a panoply, it's a, it's a vast scale of looking at things. Later on, when you're sort of um, on the highest levels, so the 9th, 10th and 11th Bahumis, as we call it in Sanskrit, um, you're looking at the cosmos. How can the cosmos be educated? The earth is becoming too small a playground for, for you as a bodhisattva. Um, Buddhahood is looming ahead. It's, it's, it's not that far away. Sometimes they say even just meditating on love can help <clears throat> purify one's own personal negative karma. Is that, again, it's like Vajrasattva is <laughs> about drawing in light, visualizing the deity, reciting a hundred-syllable mantra, and generating strong regret for previous negative actions. It doesn't matter if you do 500 prostrations before a deity, um, whether you're seeing 500,000 sort of um, on, on your mala. Always just thinking of sentient beings. You're not going to do much. Um, all you're really doing is fixing up your attitude so that you can help better. It's a daharani, as we call it. A daharani is a mechanism of fixing the mind in space so it can act. In um, doing your, say, say the, the mantras or the hundred thousand syllables or whatever, if you're thinking, Om Mani Pami Hom, I shall help the, um, the, 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 the suffering in this realm or that realm or these people and so forth, you're always thinking like this. You're sending out waves, energy waves into the ethers, that will help cleanse some of the um, psychic uh, energies in the air and set the conditionings um, for the helping of those beings later. There's some good, it's not that it's, um, but it's not what they think. 
It's not necessarily going to purify your own personal negative karma. You cannot, sense, you yeah. cannot um, experience, you cannot purify your own personal mm. negative karma except through experiencing your karma negatively or positively. In other words, the personal negative karma is going to manifest. You have to use your wisdom to transmute it. Mm. If you don't use your wisdom, all those mantras are just wasted. Um, your mantras have been saying a swear word over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, I often say to people, um, disciples, what's the good of using a Sanskrit or a Buddhist, uh, a, a Tibetan mantra if you don't understand it? If you can't visualize it? They may have given you a swear word for all you know. And you're repeating that over and over again. As a matter of fact, it can do the same. It does not matter. What matters is what's in your mind, the visualizations you produce, and then when the actions come to do the right actions, when the karma comes to do the right actions. If you've done those 100,000 prostrations or all the, the mantras and uh, all the other things that, that's, um, that the mala can be used, useful for, um, it sets your mind... It should set your mind that when that karma manifests, that you act rightly in relationship to it, or that you are humble, or whatever uh, else the the purpose of that recitation is, to, or that practice is to produce. But does it? In most practitioners, mm. um, do they still hang on to their emotions at the end of it all? Um, if they spent three months, uh, uh, three years, three months, some um, three weeks, three days, three hours in a meditation retreat, and they've come out of long hair and long fingernails, and it's clean off, um, do you think if they've just sort of re re recited mantras over and over again, that necessarily it's going to produce enlightenment or help them uh, manifest a a wise attitude? to people or to become a great teacher? Probably not. They probably very quickly um, get back to where they were before they were in that. Because the wisdom teachings is not there. The master that can teach them in meditation is not there. It's not just a matter of the outer practice. The outer practice must be internal. There must be internal transformations. If the internal transformation is not happening, then whatever you do is mumbo-jumbo. It's useful um, because it's keeping you off the streets. It's probably making you a nicer person, um, but it's not producing transformation of consciousness. It's not producing high um, Buddha-like mind. And that's what it should be producing. So what you're talking about in the whole, and what I see again and again in Tibetan Buddhism, is exoteric, not esoteric. They've lost the esoteric. Whenever you see them, anyone talk about karma in terms of the traditional six realms, any teacher talking that, then you can immediately say, there is an unenlightened teacher. It doesn't matter who it is, he's unenlightened. He doesn't understand karma. If he doesn't understand karma, how can he understand anything else of the practice? How can he even lead disciples? He doesn't understand the karma of disciples, he doesn't understand where they come from, where they're going to, or anything like that. Blind leading the blind. Why? Because all that's left nowadays, as far as I know, is the sutras. They lead the sutras, or they read the tantras over and over again, they throw the rice in the air, they do the incense, they do the ritual. Um, but the mind is left unchanged, the mind is fixed in 
some dogmatic patterning which they regard as their transmission from guru to guru. But the inner meaning is gone. Mm. The transitory meaning is gone. Even the way to unlock, unravel this, the tantras has been lost. It's just dogma. And that leads to imprisonment, as far as I can see. Um, dogmatism further and further and deeper and deeper into samsara. The samsaras of the practices believing that they're doing something that leads to enlightenment. It's like these Nyingma, for instance, over there in, um, uh, that I've, I've known, for instance, that busy think that uh, drinking alcohol uh, is part of the practice and eating meat. When it's the very opposite, it's the black dharma, not the white dharma. Sure, somebody like Middle Rapper could transmute the effects of meat eating and alcohol drinking if they wanted to. Or Sankapa, whoever, that uh, as a proper enlightened. But why would they want to? Why would they want to put poison into their bodies or psychic muck in order to prove to somebody out there that they can transmute it? That's an act of stupidity, not wisdom. And so even the, um, the, 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 the sutras, uh, even in one of my books, I think in the, my Ahimsa book, explain the meat-eating practice of, of Minarapa. It shows that the ultimate teaching that Marpa gave to him was, don't eat meat. <laughs> because it was the way that the words were actually phrased. How can you obtain enlightenment while you're causing suffering of sentient beings by eating their bodies after they've been killed violently. It's not, it's, it's a contradiction of terms. So the, the, the basic understanding of what makes an enlightened being and what makes compassion is, on the whole, absent in Buddhism. And how can you practice Vajrasattva practice or any of these other so-called tantras when they don't understand that the fundamental level of tantric practice is compassion, is the bodhisattva vow. Without the bodhisattva vow, the tantra is black magic. And the bodhisattva vow means that you better understand all the ramifications of your actions. You don't do anything that causes pain and suffering to sentient beings. And later on, you'll learn that all the cells in your body are sentient. There's devic lives um, that are incarnate all the way through. And you don't produce anything to produce pain and suffering to the cells in your body either. Because that's also part of your body suffer vow. To produce, eventually, perfect health. Mm -hmm. So you can heal. Any other questions? How, how can we achieve a clear mind when we are so much attached to worldly responsibilities? Hmm. Attachment must go. All the time, they're relinquishing attachment. As a Buddhist, this is fundamental teaching. Right? Every, every Buddhist, whether they Theravada or Mahayana or Tantric, basically says relinquish attachment. It's all samsara. But the responsibilities stay as a Bodhisattva. And all the time, you learn to relinquish attachment while you're meditating upon how best to help in the community that you're in, for instance. It's a continuous engrossing meditation. The meditation mind is growing. 
and the meditation mind, as it grows and becomes more logical, clarifies itself of gross thoughts. You understand? It becomes more and more refined. And it learns to learn to listen to wisdom, learns higher dharma, becomes even more refined, learns the art of meditation, becomes even more refined, more logical and vaster in its scope. So all the time it is practicing, but it's not attached to the end result of what it is trying to achieve even. See, um, one manifests the action. Uh, it's, it's like touching and withdrawing. Um, the, the Bodhisattva gives and then withdraws. If you are attached to the effect of your teaching, then you also suffer uh, an attachment. Um, basically, um, you, you love. You'll see the effect of your teaching, but you're not attached. Because if you are attached, then you'll try to manipulate in such a way, in some way. And when you try to manipulate it, then you create karma for yourself. Uh, anyway, these are just subtle teachings. What I'm trying to say anyway is that even in, in your community, in the type of service work you do, um, you, you give, but don't be attached, but give it more and more wisely. You learn also not to dissipate your energies, dissipate your time. What we call loving mind. Um, loving mind is when you do something lovingly, because you think that it's um, useful, but in reality it is not. Generally, the loving mind is, is a type of pride. Um, so you can waste a lot of time. You, you're not really using wisdom in the action you're doing. You're doing the loving mind action because often it's feeding your own ego one way or the other. Um, the example you gave of Milarepa's wife was loving mind. Mm, that's right. When she tried to help Milarepa, it was out of loving mind that she did. Is it not possible to have a clear mind being attached? How can you have a clear mind if it's attached? There's nothing clear once it's attached. You've brought in areas of tainted muddiness. Um, only through um, a non-attachment uh, is something like. Um, uh, being in a, a balloon, uh, they're looking high above the the earth, and the balloon is just sailing there, and um, the, the the panorama is moving, um, and when you attach to something, then you make it your own. But what about sangha? Sangha is attachment. Yes, there is a form of attachment there, but again, um, what you if you're going to attach yourself to anything, attach yourself to that which produces the broadest, most beneficial results for all. Right? Um, but it's not an emotional attachment that we're looking at. It's uh, attachment uh, or connection based on wisdom. The Sangha is, you're attached to the Sangha, not because so much, though there's the love, you've already produced the love what we call the Antichrinas. You're attached to the Sangha because for life after life after life after life, you've been working with that group. It's a mandala of which you are part of. And that mandala is growing and as you grow, it grows. You're never free from it. And as you gain enlightenment, it gains enlightenment and everyone escapes as Buddha together as a mandala. Hmm? Um, whereas attachment to some... We're talking about samsaric things, not that which produces 
enlightenment. So when you're talking about attachment to a samsara, you're talking about that which produces liberation. Whereas we're talking about that which produces um, poison, which binds you to samsara, which binds you to the wheel of birth and death, to suffering, and which binds others to that wheel. And you're trying to disattach yourself and others from the wheel of birth and death, so that eventually everyone is freed, or everything is freed. Um, so one can be passionate about an issue. For instance, I can be passionate about the issue of the, um, the poverty in India. Um, and, um, and as a body was we have these strong passions. Uh, that's a, a type of driving urge that makes us serve, that makes us help. Right? Um, um, in my case, I'm passionate about the lack of, lack of um, wisdom in Buddhism. Like, I want to fix this up. Right? And I want to fix up what I call um, Adharma in Buddhism. The ignorance level of, in Buddhism is abysmal. So I write books. Right? And I write many books trying to fix this up. I teach people, students. I don't have many Buddhist students. Um, but I'm passionate about this issue. Uh, and the books will come out whether or not I have students or not. You understand? Um, and you have passion about Gurkhaland. It's okay. Um, so you're trying to fix this up. Um, but you're not attached so much um, to people in it or to the form. What you are attached to is the idea, the, con the concept of because if we can have a self-governing body of your people, then um, you can help the poor, the communities properly according to resources that they can have and so forth. So this is a bodhisattva ideal. Can it be achieved? If you are attached to it and it's not achieved, then there's lots of grief, pain and suffering. What I call head banging, right? One's banging <laughs> one's head against the wall and it's not producing anything. Just pain in here. Yes? And I see a lot of head banging. Uh, so one has to think up logically, cleanly, clearly how to produce the changes that are desired. Can it be produced in this life? Maybe it can be produced next life. Good, next life is fine. Um, next life reincarnate or people will incarnate and the whole system will be changed because seeds will have been sown now. Um, sometimes I'm thinking, for instance, I'm right now fulfilling a act, a thought form that I conceived of 10,000 years ago and only now is it coming to fruition. So we may wait year, thousands of years for something to come, but eventually it will. And we've sown the seeds then. The seeds were done in different ways, which I can remember and nobody else here can. But um, the seeds were sown and they've grown. I have a bunch of students here that were not students then. They were the opposite camp. Uh, they were uh, black magicians, or whatever you want to call them. Now they are converted and they... Well, they're not fully enlightened, but they're loving, every one of them. Um, so sometimes um, one has to sow the seeds, give the wisdom, stand back and watch, and then step in, give the next seed, the next wisdom, stand back and watch. This is non-attachment, yes? 
Attachment is when you personally get involved in something because you want to push, shove, force something to happen that it may not necessarily go that way or is to go that way. There's a very popular modern Hindu teaching that, that there is no choice at all, that, that everything's predestined. No, that's not correct. Every moment of your day, you've got choice. The karma will push you in a certain direction. Always push you in a certain direction. But remember, I was talking about this thing called conscience earlier on. And you can go with that conscience, or you can go against it. And if you go against it, you create karma. If you go with it, then there's no karma. Uh, and the conscience may be, for instance, going to the army. What? To kill people. But it may be something to do with cleansing your karma. I don't you know, I'm just giving you mm. a gross example. But um, you can fight the conscience. You can fight um, the voice within you. Um, and then um, you'll create different karma or more karma. Um, so every moment of the day, you've always got these little decisions. Shall I go here or shall I go there? Shall I do this or shall I do that? Shall I read this or shall I read that? Every moment of the day. And every moment of the day you do all these little decisions, you answer them, you're creating karma or you're working off karma. Um, and so all the way through, we as a group on the whole, this thing that um, was mentioned before called loving mind, that's one of the great enemies of a high bodhisattva. Um, loving mind is one of the easiest ways to produce a lot more new karma. You do loving things, but it's not wise. It's going against conscience. It's going against your voice. Sometimes you may have to see something, uh, somebody suffer. It's like um, um, seeing the baby um, first touch the fire. You know, I got my little girl some time ago to, to actually touch that fire um, for one second to know that it was hot. It's no good to just tell her hot, 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 hot. It doesn't mean anything until she actually has a little pain and then when she got the pain reaction and I explained to her this is why we say it's hot now you know you understand well loving mind could be to try to protect at all times from any form of suffering um, or any form of life's um, experiences but a wise parent will not try to protect their children from all of life's experience like um, the parents of the Buddha try to protect him but they'll try to prepare them for all of life's problems, yes? To make sure that they know how to meet every aspect, everything that life can throw at them, rightly or properly, depending on the resources they've got. I mean, let, let's face it, you know, everyone would like to be millionaires or multi-millionaires and give their children everything uh, like that. But that's not the best for children. The best, that, that way children just grow up to be brats. Uh, we don't want brats as children. We don't want spoilt children either. What we want is children that can handle all of life's problems much better, yes? Um, to, to become the scientist or the professional or whatever in society and to grow up to be a responsible, mature adult in their society and actually productive member, whatever it is. Um, some parents are very, very sort of um, uh, ambitious for their children and others have actual sort of sane and honest uh, ambitions. Loving mind, terrible thing. Um, that's understandable.